What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to welcome brother-sister rock duo The Fiery Furnaces. Plus, we'll review the new album from rapper Lupe Fiasco. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now to welcome our newest affiliate. Greg, we are now going to be on in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, downstate Illinois, on WGLT. We decided to check in with a cool local record store called The Waiting Room in Normal. Jared Alcorn is the manager there. We got him on the phone. Jared, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. So, uh, you know, when we when we have a new affiliate come on board, we like to welcome them with a little chat with somebody who's in the center of the musical community. You're the hippest record store. What are people buying? Um, well, we had a few. Some of the biggest ones for us this year was Arcade Fire, Feist, Grinder Man, Modest Mouse, The Shins. All good records. Good taste in Bloomington, Illinois. I'd like to think so. How about locally, man? What's the, uh, what's the coolest local band? Um, well, we've had a few that have been doing pretty well this year. Um, probably Laser Eyes has sold the most, which is pretty good for a band that's not even together anymore. Oh, really? So, so this is a posthumous release? Yep. Let's hear a little of this. Let's, let's see what Laser Eyes sounds like. That sounds like it starts out in sleep territory and then goes into this kind of death metal, uh, industrial thrash kind of thing. A little bit. That's neat. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Jared. Yeah, thank you. That's The Police, of course, with a song called One World, uh, and in 2007 it was The Police's World, as, at least as far as the touring industry is concerned. The Police's 2007 reunion tour, their first in two decades, grossed $212 million, Jim. Uh, you know, a nice idea for these three guys to get to, back together again, an indication of where the uh, biases of the concert industry market lie. They yeah. love these reunion tours. They love these classic rock acts coming back out on the road again because they can charge 
charge exorbitant ticket prices and make a lot of money on them. Number two on the list was uh, one of your favorites, uh, Genesis. Not even the original Genesis, but the the three guys the from nineties Genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got back together again. They had the second biggest tour of, of two thousand and seven with one hundred twenty nine million. So what does that say about the uh, the state of the concert industry when your two biggest touring acts are bands that have not been together for you know at least ten years? In the case of the Police, twenty years. They come back on the road and they clean up at the box office, where as a lot of uh, newer acts are are struggling to make that kind of anywhere near that kind of money on the road. Well, there were a couple of standouts. You know, Future Sex Love Show, Justin Timberlake's jaunt uh, that grossed one hundred twenty six point eight million. That was number three on the list. And Christina Aguilera was down uh, at number nine with a little more than forty eight million. But you're right; the rest of the names are hoary old. War horses, <laughs> you know, Rod Stewart and Roger Waters. And if, this, of course, doesn't even take into account StubHub and all the aftermarket sales. I got a press release from them the other day, which basically scalpers crowing about what a great year they had. Mm-hmm. You know, money going in the hands of speculators as opposed to fans. And certainly the artists aren't benefiting. Yeah, the secondary ticket market on these big shows, in other words, these, uh, these scalpers and brokers, had a, another banner year in 2007. But the concert industry as a whole, Jim, I think, uh, got some really disturbing news. Okay, so the police had a big ear, Genesis had a big ear, Justin Timberlake did as well, but the concert industry as a whole was down 10.2% in 2007 to $2.6 billion, and even more alarmingly, attendance was down nearly 20% to $51 million. And again, these promoters are saying, where are the new acts? Where are the, the up-and-comers? Where are the mid-level acts? Well, you know, these people have no one to blame but themselves. I mean, who are they developing? Who are they putting out on the road? When you're putting your energies and your money into the police and Genesis reuniting. You know, and it hurt to have a band like the White Stripes who was about to go out on tour not being able to tour. So you're not seeing the new generation of bands taking the place of the Police Reunion Tour or the Genesis Reunion Tour. Well, except for Hannah Montana, and you skipped that show. (laughs) Exactly, with good reason. But you're not seeing those acts coming up. And you know what? Good riddance to those kind of reunion tours. I mean, when you have to pay 100 bucks plus to go see the police reunite, you know, that's completely out of the league of most people. And I don't think people should be expected to pay those kind of prices in future years, because that's what the concert industry wants. That's Running Down a Dream from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, The title song, as it were, from a four-hour documentary that has been airing on the Sundance channel in recent months and is now out on DVD. A four-hour documentary about the career and life of Tom Petty and his band, The Heartbreakers. Directed by no slouch in the directing department, Peter Bogdanovich, Oscar-winning director, who broke through in the early 70s with a movie called The Last Picture Show, one of the most acclaimed uh, Hollywood movies ever. Uh, He also directed The Mask with Cher in it in the mid-'80s. Got a long history in Hollywood, got a long history as a documentarian and a journalist. And people probably know him recently from appearing on The Sopranos absolutely. as the shrinks shrink. <laughs> We've got uh, Peter Bogdanovich on the phone from his hotel room in New York City. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Peter. Thank you. Peter, you have done a four-hour documentary on Tom Petty, Running Down a Dream, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It's airing on the Sundance Channel. It is out in DVD. You are a man who picks big subjects. You have done major work on people like Orson Welles. You've written a book about Orson Welles. You've written a book and done a documentary on John Ford. 
Tom Petty, does he fit into that pantheon of, of great men, great artists in American history? Obviously, he does for you. Yeah, well, that was what interested me about him. I think he's a very talented, gifted, brilliant uh, American artist. And I approached the documentary with that point of view. Yeah, when did, when did you become a fan? I mean, what was it about Petty that interested I, I, you? I, I didn't become a fan until I did this movie. Really? I'd heard a couple of songs, but I didn't know much about him, which is one of the reasons that interested me, because, I mean, I knew he was good. And they, Tom liked my movies and wanted to meet me and was interested in having me do this. Mm-hmm. So we met in November of '05, and um, we got we struck a we, we we hit it off very well immediately, and that was the beginning of it. You know, I just th- thought he was so American in, a, in the best possible sense. It was really a, a Native American artist. With, with a sense of Americana that was very acute, I thought. It's, it's interesting, Peter, because I think what, we, what you see with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and the more you watch your uh, documentary, you, you realize this. This band has had a 30-year run, and, and it's not like they're the Rolling Stones, where it's this multi-million dollar mega corporation. I mean, the, the Heartbreakers, are, I suppose, are a corporation in their own right. But what this is really is a story of a working American rock and roll band and, and the rarity of being able to hang together. It's, it's almost like peeling back the curtain and how does a band work and how does it stay together for that length of time? I mean, is that how, how you started seeing the story? Because that's the way I see your, your movie in a way. Yes, it is. It's very, it's very much the story. You know, I determined right away, right from the first meeting, that Tom, I'd like Tom to tell the story. I found him very charismatic in a in a non show dog kind of way, mm-hmm. uh, and it sort of a, reminded me of not not specifically, but he reminded me of somebody like Gary Cooper, somewhat laconic, laid mm. back, the epitome of cool actually, mm-hmm. and very and quintessentially American, Southern American too. As you know, the South is a font of extraordinary writers, from Mark Twain and um, Thomas Wolfe. And William Faulkner and and um, Truman Capote. I mean, the Tennessee Williams is an amazing. All the most of the great American writers somehow come from the South, and I think there's something about the South that is, sets it apart. And um, Tom is very much of a representative of that. So I decided early on that I wanted we weren't going to have a narrator. We'd have Tom tell the story, and of course the band and the people around him. So we interviewed about 28 people. Yeah, you do, you do a very thorough job of uh, journalism, and, and uh, Peter, you are a, a great journalist. You've done some amazing work as a journalist, even before you were a, a director. Thank you. Uh, and it shows in this, in this documentary. The thing that I'm intrigued about is you got Ben Montench to talk. In <laughs> I mean, what an amazing feat. I mean, he's a great guy. He, he has refused interviews up and down. I've tried to talk to him for 20 years. Really? Yeah, how did you get him to talk? I mean, he's not a guy who doesn't... He, he just routinely says, well, I, I'm sorry, I just don't do them. Well, I mean, the whole band agreed to do interviews for the movie. That was just became a given. And the only person who... Former band member who didn't agree to be interviewed is the, the ex-drummer, Stan Lynch. Mm-hmm. But we had interviews with him in the archives that... <clears throat> in, in Tom's uh, archive that... Um, we, we were able to use, so he's very much a part of the movie. I think the fact that I was asking the questions, it was very important to me that I do the interviews and that I ask the questions, even though in many cases the producer 
George Draculius, who's a record producer, and who had the idea to put us together, Tom and me. Mm-hmm. George would pet, would slip me questions as we as we were doing the interview. When it got to certain something that there was an interesting tangent or something a nuance that I wasn't aware of, he would pass it to pass me a note. But it was very important to me that the interviewees were talking to me when it was happening. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I bring a certain baggage into the room, and uh, I felt that they'd be more honest and more straightforward with me than they would with somebody else. No, it's true. I thought that was a failing in Scorsese's documentary with Dylan, is that he never sat down and interviewed Dylan himself. Yeah. Not to diss another director. (laughs) (laughs) But Peter, you know, it's a four-hour film, and it sucks you right through. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like it's that long, both both on Sundance and on on DVD. Well, that's a big compliment. I'm glad. That was what we were trying to do. At a certain point in in the process, we realized that it was going to be long. I mean, I knew it was going to be, it couldn't be short because we're dealing with 30 years. In fact, you you mentioned the Scorsese-Dylan picture, and... Marty took three hours and 40 minutes to tell six years of Dylan. And mm-hmm. uh, I figured if, that, if that's the case, well, why, why shouldn't we take four hours to tell 30 years of Tom Petty? Well, now, he's really a self-effacing character, uh, Tom Petty. Greg and I have both interviewed him any number of times. He's always most loquacious when he's telling stories about other people. He's always wanting to tell us George Harrison stories, which are very funny. <laughs> but was there a point where he said to you, he started this ball rolling, but was there a point where he said to you, I don't know if I want this much of me up there on that screen. There were certain areas that that took a little pushing to keep them going. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's two uh, kind of key revelations for me about this movie. One was you got into these issues about his upbringing, his his relationship with his father specifically, yeah. as being fuel for his artistic freedom. There was an extreme rage in me that from time to time would show its head through a lot of my life. Any sort of injustice just outraged me. I just couldn't contain myself. And this comes from from my dad just being so incredibly verbally abusive to me. And uh, he was certainly physically abusive at times. He would uh, give me pretty good beatings most of my life. How did that sort of emerge that that childhood really shaped him, and he played rock and roll, and it, rock and roll really did save this kid's life. Yeah, that's true. Well, I we, we, we had glimmers of it for in the interviews with Tom. He, he made certain references to his dad and the situation he was in and the difficult childhood, but he didn't get into details, but other people did. His brother told me about it, and his daughter mentioned it. So... I toward the when once I once I felt that Tom really trusted me, I pushed him to tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we because we didn't do all our interviews in one lump. We we did them over a period of months. You know, one other extraordinary scene in the movie I thought was the scene from the early '90s where Petty is in a recording studio. It looks like with Roger McGuinn, one of his heroes, the, yes. the founder of the Birds, and there's a record company guy there trying to get Roger to record a certain song, and Petty's looking at the song and going, what is this crap? The A&R guy, the guy from the record company, seemed awfully young to me. I don't think he understood, you know, the depth of the artist he was working with. Sorry, Roger. No, I, I, I appreciate I just it, can't hold it in any longer, because I, I love you so I, much. I love I you, man. You, you, you do around. You're doing what you do, and that's great. No, we're not trying to... 
him around. I know you're not trying to f him around, but you are if you make him do this song. Because sometimes the commercial road, you know, like thinking that that's the road to take isn't always the road to take. Sometimes it's doing stuff from your heart and being really honest with people works much better. Well, let's change some lyrics. Well, why don't you just give him a song? I'm just curious how you came across that piece of uh, film footage. Well, that was interesting. We were interviewing Roger, and um, Roger brought it up. He says, we've got this, you know, this confrontation that happened, and somebody shot it, and Roger had a copy of it. Tom didn't have a copy of it, but Roger did. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about it until Roger brought it up. And I thought it was a perfect example of, you know, Tom... Tom's integrity and the steadfastness in the face of authority. <laughs> yeah. He was going to stand, he wasn't going to back down from his opinion that it was a lousy song, that this guy shouldn't be singing it. It's one of the highlights of the movie. In fact, in a couple of screenings I've been with audiences where we had, you know, 400 people or something, there were a lot, there was a considerable cheering in that section. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and so on. Particularly, particularly the screening we had in L.A. where it was a lot of industry people. Oh, Petty's a guy who put his money where his mouth is, fought with his record company to charge consumers less. We've been talking to Peter Bogdanovich, director of Running Down a Dream, the extraordinary new Tom Petty film. Peter, I think we're remiss if we let you go. As a fellow rock fan, as a film great on your own, if we didn't ask you, what's your favorite rock movie of all time? <laughs> we had Roger Ebert on the show. We did this once. And, I mean, Greg and I can talk about this forever. We're just fans of the genre. But obviously you went into this making this rock documentary, and every documentarian in this field that I've talked to has always said, I didn't want to make a rockumentary. Few of them succeed in making a film that transcends that. Well, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I looked at a lot of the documentaries that have been made, and not, I didn't want to make one like them. What I wanted to do was an image, a vision that I had right after Tom and I talked, right as I was beginning to work on it. I said I wanted a movie where we had a lot of people talking, but we didn't sit on their faces for very long. I didn't want a lot of talking heads cross-cutting. I wanted to have a lot of images. I wanted the talking heads not to be talking heads so much as narrators. I mm. wanted the story to, I wanted it to be more of a movie mm -hmm. where you could follow the story visually. So I had this vision of what the movie should be like. I wish I could say it was easy to achieve that goal. It was a really twisting, turning road to get to where we got. But it did turn out the way I imagined it would. But I, uh, there were many times along the year and a half, almost two years that we spent on it, where I thought, I don't know how we're going to get to this place. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it, was, it, was, it was hard, you know. Well, it, did, it absolutely works. Thank you, Peter, for uh, sharing some time with us. I also have to say, as a guy who grew up in Jersey City and Hoboken, man, The Sopranos, you were great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very kind. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we welcome the fiery furnaces for an interview and a live performance in the Jim and K. Maybe studio.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are about to be joined by the Fiery Furnaces. Greg, they came together back in uh, 2002 in Brooklyn and have put out a half dozen albums since then that have kind of captivated the indie rock underground. But we know Matt and Eleanor Friedberger from growing up here in Oak Park, Illinois. Let's go to the Jim and K. Maybe studio. We're going to talk to them and have a live performance. We're here in the uh, studio with the Fiery Furnaces, back behind the wall of pain. The drummer, Robert D'Amico. Uh, we have Jason Lowenstein on bass. Jason, uh, you know, a little side project here with the Fiery Furnaces, also in a band called Sebado. And then, of course, Matthew and Eleanor Friedberger, the founding members of the Fiery Furnaces. Welcome. Thanks. Hi, thank you. You can call me Matt, Greg. <laughs> okay, Matt. Um, fifth album with Fiery Furnaces, Widow City. And let's go back to the beginning, because uh, Eleanor and Matt have been uh, standing on the street corner in, in uh, their native Oak Park, Illinois, this last couple of days signing autographs. I'm sure you guys get ticker tape parades when you come home. And Actually, <laughs> the opposite <laughs> happened today. I, uh, for the first time, I got pulled over uh, while we were driving here by an Oak Park police officer. So welcome home, Eleanor, right? Yeah. Yeah, thank wow. you. He let me He let me off. But Yeah, when he saw your ID, he was very, very friendly, so don't know if that was accidental or not. Maybe he's a fan. Now, I have to ask you this. Eleanor was living in, uh, in Brooklyn in 2001. Matt, you were out here in, in Oak Park. No, I was in Queens in 2001. Oh, okay. So, but you moved out. At one point, you moved out to New York to form a band with Eleanor, correct? Well, I moved there just to uh, move there for, for kicks, you know, to enjoy the high life in New York City. Uh-huh. <laughs> going to the, the clubs and stuff. Making the scene. Yeah, but um, the Eleanor was there, too, and so she enrolled me to help her in, the, in her band. So, Eleanor, you brought Matt in to your band. Exactly, yeah. I have to say, forming a band with a family member, I mean, I love my wife dearly, I love my sister dearly, but forming a band with them would be the last thing I would think I would want to do. You should try, Greg. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how do you know? How yeah. do you know until you try? Uh, okay. It's uh, good to, you know, then you... Um, you know why you don't like, you know, when you're in a band with friends, you, you think uh, at some point you think, why am I hanging out with this? Why am I calling this idiot on the phone? Even if you like them to some extent. But you're meant to call your sister up on the phone at some point. So you never ask that question, really. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't, actually. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. You're stuck with your relatives, you know, so it's, so it's harder to quit. Whereas, you know, I love to, I love to quit things personally, so I would always quit bands. Yeah. But how are you going to quit your sibling? You know, you're always going to have to deal with them to some extent. So it seems harder to quit them than you persevere a little bit more. Right. Um, before we get into the music, why don't we hear a song? Uh, we'd like to play a song called Japanese Slippers, which is um, <laughs> a song Matt and I, it's a nice collaboration. We wrote the words together in a room together, which doesn't happen that often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here it goes. Shed. The boys are picking at their pearls. The 
holding my middle, let's the rain get in. About 22 ounces from the Petro Park, waiting at the light. None of them gonna make it back in time. The Geraldine and me can begin. Mr. Raymond is Japanese snippers, comes creeping in. I sit with the fat on my face and sip shandies all day. I learn to sleep standing up so I don't have to make the bed. No tobacco for my rolling papers, warm water in my cup. I have to wait all morning. Geraldine and me can't begin. Mr. Raymond is Japanese snippers, I come creeping in. Turkey carpets and green glass diamonds. I drove back and forth for five long rolling moons. And every day and every night I thought of back at home. And I couldn't get the notion out of my head that said, But Geraldine and me can't begin. Mr. Raymond's Japanese slippers come creeping in. Tripping on those Japanese slippers seems to be my fate. It's my job to cut down all the poplar trees. And I'd sit on the stumps and listen to the finches. And stare out at the field and eat honey out of the jar. And wonder why it always seemed like the Geraldine and me can begin. Mr. Raymond and his Japanese slippers are completed. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Japanese slippers by the Fiery Furnaces, one of the standout tracks on uh, Widow City. Their sixth or seventh album, depending on how you're counting. Eleanor, you said it's rare for for you and Matt to write lyrics together. You know, your lyrics get a lot of attention with good reason. I mean, there's not that many people that use a word like finches or pomegranates or or puce or all the. I mean, you know, very literary minded, very colorful, enigmatic lyrics that paint pictures in your head. How did that song come to be written together, and how do you write when you're apart? Well, I just had a few lines like uh, sit with the fan on my face and sip shandies all day. I learned to sleep, stand up, so I don't have to make the bed. And then Matt added the first verse. And then I remember just sitting on the couch together going back and forth with the other lines, you know. So those first couple of lines revealed what the song was going to be about? No, 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 not in that not in that instance, which is actually pretty rare because Matt has a good idea, of, I think, of what each song is going to be about before he actually writes it, you know. Well, because there was this thing in your bio this time around about you sitting with a Ouija board trying to write yeah. the lyrics. <laughs> well, th- this record, it was sp- we wanted to have, we w- the music was supposed to be early 70s sounding, so we wanted to have the lyrics fit that be also be from or of, you know, pop culture artifacts from early 70s. So, Eleanor got, did some research. Why don't you pick up the story from there? Well, in our grandmother's basement is all kinds of... Um Stuff <laughs> like she she never throws anything away, which is lucky for us. So she had a big stack of um, early seventies House and Garden and House Beautiful magazines, which Matt and I poured over for a few weeks. And then, so five of the songs on the record were written from the scripts we made. You know, stealing the phrases from the ads in those ma- old magazines, and then the other 
11 I wrote to try to uh, fit in with those. And there's a lot in those sort of old ads, there's a lot of pop sort of spirituality, you know, after psychedelia <laughs> sort of. Mm-hmm. numerology astrology mm-hmm. thing so the Ouija, the parker brothers the old parker brothers ouija board game yeah. i instantly thought of it you know that's what i needed to imagine to try to write lyrics uh to fit with these other i remember that well i think we had one in my house and then the exorcist came out and my mother threw it away you wouldn't couldn't have that now you couldn't have a devil talking machine marketed to children nowadays <laughs> yeah the country has <laughs> yeah. taken no, a true. step back so you guys are satanic rockers. This is a good thing. We love things having to do with Satanism. We're not satanic rockers. <laughs> in this, uh... Oh, we'll make that clear. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a Jimmy Page reference. I didn't subscribe to Aleister Crowley's theories. I just like enjoyed reading about them. That's right. Um, but there's a lot of alliteration, a lot of multisyllable words crammed into small spaces. Yes. First time I heard you guys, I thought I haven't heard anything like this in the rock context. The best thing I, best context I could think of for it was like a Gilbert. And Sol- O'Sullivan operetta, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> Gilbert O'Sullivan operetta. Yes, yeah, right, yeah, right, Gilbert o- O'Sullivan. Op- yeah, exactly, Gilbert and Sullivan uh, operettas. Well, we don't have as if you can remember Alone Again Natural. It's got some beautiful chord changes, <laughs> but so yeah, we like a lot of a lot of big noisy words. There's a lot of alliteration, a lot of and have like you say the uh, too many syllables for the tune to give it that nice. Uh, awkward rhythmic variety uh-huh. especially when the the song is a nice is a simple four square you know four by four rock and roll right number <laughs> yeah and, and of course eleanor has the job to sing these and every time i talk to eleanor we always bring the i always bring this up <laughs> but i think it's really amazing what you have to sing and how you sing it was this a job that you ever protested against and saying you know I, this is just too much Mm, not not recently. I mean i remember the first a song called straight street from blueberry boat matt matt yeah, it goes like that. Matt gave me the lyrics, and I said, ah, I can't say all these words. You know, I actually said, I can't do this. And he said, just try. It's going to sound great. And then it's kind of been like that ever since. Mm-hmm. Well, let's have another song. Okay. Do you want to do the title track? Yes. We're going to play the title track of the record, Widow City, in a nice little waltz, waltz style here. Hopefully it'll sound nice and something you can listen to by the fire. <laughs> One, two, three, one, two, three. Anti-Archangel wrote a letter per usual. Dan hit it's a hundred degrees perpetual. Sent via the swift drama direct to this in her ways. Managed to void my lottery ticket. A drunk on one wooden widow city. Widow city's drunk on one wooden. Tomorrow night when the sun sets tonight, I might need to handle myself with the degenerate kind of a strange combine. It boxes on the mountain girls. Boxes on the mountain girls So negotiate The deserts and pits You can't rely on your dim wits Wag your head and ping your clocks Ready for the 
the rendezvous with the sticks and the stocks Said the wicked ones were way said with Sandy the sweet Dromedary traversing on the odd and even days I'm drunk on one wooden widow sin Widow sin is drunk on one wood Tomorrow night when the sun sets at night I might need tangle myself with the degenerate cannabis strains that I'll find. And they've made my chain even heavier, if you can imagine. But they made my chain even heavier, if you can imagine. City from the Fiery Furnaces, and uh, sounded great. The band in a live setting is sort of a different beast than it is in the studio. Cut up songs, mixing up the lyrics, mixing up the the songs, and melding them together. Why is that? Well, we get to uh, I get to make a different record uh, when we play live. You know, it gets to be we've got the record we made, and then we get to rearrange all the songs for live, and it's as if it's a different record. It's just fun. It's just who ism. I mean, whenever you read about the Who as a kid in those old books, they'd say, oh, live, you know, they made a record one way and then live it would be mm-hmm. different, even if the arrangements weren't that different. But, right. Though mm-hmm. on, for this record, we've been playing, uh, for this tour, we've been playing the same the songs with the same tunes uh, live. Mm-hmm. We, often we would, would change the tunes, just keep the words, but right. now it's a little different. I, I think that this has been a banner year for concept albums in a lot of ways and for a return to um, really ambitious kind of pop music that was prevalent in the progressive rock era. I mean, the Decemberists did it, and Arcade Fire in a lot of ways, and, and you guys now. Um, you know, R. Uh, Kelly? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> That's a different kind of concept. It's a little more one-dimensional. We, we identify more with the R. Kelly side than the, other, than the other bands you just mentioned. Really? Definitely. All right, so whether we're talking about R. Kelly or the Decemberists, concept album was a dirty word in underground rock and rock and roll period for a long time and yet you don't shy away from that ambition well i mean there were some you know i think a zen arcade the who's could do record Mm -hmm. you know i'm not a big sonic youth fan but daydream nation seemed like a kind of a concept record Mm. we we definitely think in terms of albums you know album rock are you are you getting a sense from your fans that they're listening? I mean, this is supposed to be the iPod generation, you know. And Greg and I certainly hear from a lot of listeners who who still love that, you know, A to Z musical journey that an album can create. But do you get a sense that that people are are if they're loading into their iPod, they're still starting at song one and ending at song fifteen? No, no. <laughs> I I, th- I think people really they don't. It's very rare that they hear it in the same way that you the mm. way you intended it. They, they don't hear it in the context that you want to put it in usually. But like I say, that it's fun to have people use things in totally different ways from which you intended them. You know, you sure. have it, and and uh, that's how re- songs get life. You know, that's the whole point of putting them out is people use them in ways that you don't understand or don't like, but 
that's what's fun. That's actually more fun to hear about people using things in ways you don't get. Since we're talking all this stuff about 70s and arena rock and the sounds of the 70s, what was the first big mega concert each of you went to? Mine was Robert Plant at the Rosemont Horizon. Solo Plant. Yeah, but it was the first tour he started doing Zeppelin songs again. I think we were at that show, right, Greg? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I was 13. Yeah, we weren't. Yeah, I wasn't 13. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But, but it, it's, it, the voice is still there. It's down an octave, but it's still pretty powerful. Well, we, we I mean, this is a side note, but I had it was very memorable because we got moved from the balcony to the second row. Hey. Because my friend bought a T-shirt straight away and put it on over her shirt. Mm-hmm. And then somebody, dra- you know, I don't know what they had missed. You know, nobody bought one. No one bought the expensive tickets, the I The golden circle. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So was your life changed by seeing Robert Plant? No. <laughs> I mean, oh, so, so you didn't enjoy the experience? No, I loved No, yeah, it was it was amazing. Matt? <laughs> I, I didn't go. I, I, the first time I saw a big show was seeing Black Sabbath in 1999 or something like that. I never mm. went to a big rock show. Hmm. First show I went to was seeing The Replacements at the Riviera in 1980, August 7th, 1987 or something like that. So you were an indie rocker through and through. well you know indie it's funny because they had you know back in then it was punk rock and college rock i didn't know what i don't think i remember what indie rock was i liked you know the things that were on the small i I liked what was supposed to be cool yeah (laughs) frankly but of course the music was good but you know that's that's the only rock concert i've ever been to like a rock concert on that level yeah i mean i've been at festivals but only because we were playing at them. So. Mm-hmm. How about another song? Yeah, give us some of that indie rock. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> How about some college rock? Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't want to play any college rock. Well, you want to play Ex Guru? Yeah, we're going to play a song called Ex Guru. One of those blonde ladies had a certain hold on me. Went to all the seminars by the airport in the double tree. I even let her use nephew's seaplane in the Bahamas for free. But she means nothing to me now. I tell myself that every day. But she means nothing to me now. I tell myself every All my clothes with eucalyptus juice. Ripped out the floors and painted all the platforms pews. I went so far as to sacrifice a second snake to Zeus, but she means nothing to me now. I tell myself that every day. She means nothing to me. in the moonlight on her mesa in March? Does she kick up a thunderstorm when she thinks of my betrayal? 
She means nothing to me now. She means nothing to me now. That was the first time we've ever done that, like that. <laughs> Bob D'Amico, Jason Lowenstein, Matt Friedberger, and Eleanor Friedberger, Fiery Furnaces. Thanks for coming into Sound Opinion. It's been a real treat. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for rolling with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For more of the Fiery Furnaces, you can hear some live songs at soundopinions.org. And we're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new album from Lupe Fiasco. I want to restore You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. If you are what you say you are, a superstar, then have no fear. The crowd is here and the lights are on and they want to show. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, a fresh cool young loon. Trying to cash his microphone, check 212. Wanna believe my own hype, but it's too untrue. The world brought me to my knees, what if you brung you? Did you improve on the design? Did you do something new? Where you naming on the guest list? Who brung you? You, the more famous person you come through. And the sexy lady next to you, you come too. And then the hitman, standing outside of heaven, waiting for God to come and get me. I'm too uncouth, unschooled to the rules, and too gumshoe. Too much of a newcomer, and too uncool. Like Shadow and LaVille, I battle with it. That is a song called Superstar from the second album by Chicago rapper Lupe Fiasco. 
called The Cool. This guy broke through in a big way in 2006. The former Wasalu Mohammed Jaco, who was a guest on Sound Opinions last year, was a then 24-year-old rapper, started the year by uh, guesting on Touch the Sky by Kanye West, followed it up with his debut, Food and Liquor, which was you know, delayed for years by the major label, finally came out, sells 300,000 copies, and he has a big hit with this song, Kick Push, which you and I absolutely loved. A rap song about the joys of skateboarding. Mm -hmm. Did for skateboards, I think, what the Beach Boys did for surfboards. How does Lupe Fiasco follow that up? He, He was kind of under the gun in 2007. He had a tough year. His father died. A beloved aunt in his family died. He was touched by both of these losses. And then a friend who he often called his business partner, sometimes he called him his manager, Charles Patton, was uh, sentenced to 44 years in jail on drug charges. This is interesting because as a devout Muslim, Lupe is against drugs. You know, he called his album Food and Liquor because that's like a source of community in the in the black neighborhoods of Chicago. You know, one of the only things that people get together around the food and liquor on the corner of every right. block. But he, he doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. And, and he's got this image. He, he's a nerd. He's a science fiction loving, skateboarding, video game playing, middle class African American. And he's not ashamed to rap about things that are considered pretty darn geeky, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like Urkel grown up to become a rapper and he's proud of that one of his favorite albums of all time he says is Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. He wanted to make a record that was like that. I talked to him just a couple of weeks ago, and I said, "What you know? What the heck are you talking about?" And he said, "I want to put out a record that's strong, cohesive, and I want to say watchable like a movie." Did he succeed? Let's play a track from it, and then we'll get into a discussion of the cool. This is a song called High Definition. It features a cameo from a rapper who doesn't have any problems with uh, sex and drugs and, and life on the wild side, Snoop Dogg. But it's it's still Lupe's show here on Sound of Pitties. Yeah. Uh, uh, my turn. It's more like a re up. I hold a hole like a teacup. Well, in one hand, while the other hand throw the piece up. My other hand throwing weed without the E up. I got like five more, man. I'm something like Shiva. And that fall of Rome, number four, Deluxe. See, I've been around the world like the gnome, but I come from a zone where the homes all beat up. The folks are gnomes and the stones all beat up. Police tap my phones, got my songs on speaker. Say he's back the poems, got their domes all geeked up. To get up on their thones and become young leaders. Oprah put it on my culture, now if that ain't wrong. I just got it from the rhymes, now if that ain't blown. They gave my man folded foe, now if that ain't long. I put it all on my shoulders, now if that ain't strong. I made it out alive from the streets of the West Side, CHI. Now if that ain't home, you better tell them. And in my flyness, I become the hero and the sidekick, the rider, and then again that I ride with. In your ear, like the maker of the vibrant. I sell my to the maker of the vibrant. The mother's niggas on vibe with. 
I was about three when the eyes went But I can see everything that you're trying to be You can't hide it Why you coming out your throats like a homelick? I came up out the belly like a hop script Only my circumstance revised it Hijacked the role and went and shot the pilot I'm trying to go public so I can get the private Then send busy to go and get the pirates Then hit Africa, try to fix the virus Go back to the hood, tell Huggy open the hydrants R.I.P. Stack B, I'ma keep you alive, kid Dressed in something so fresh and wonderful F-N, F-N, S-N-O-O-P Lupe Fiasco with a song called High Definition from his second album called The Cool. Lupe Fiasco with the difficult second record. The, the first one, of course, is the, the breezy look back at, at youthfulness. Uh, you, you mentioned the skateboarding song, Kick Push, Jim. There was sort of a breezy undertow to that record. It, it was easy to love, melodic, yeah. just an easy listen for a lot of people, even those people who say, quote-unquote, I hate hip-hop, but I like Lupe Fiasco. The second record, wow. Talk about a turn for the darkness. This mm-hmm. is a much heavier record in almost every way. He was talking about serious subjects on the debut. This one, though, the music in a lot of ways reflects that seriousness as well. It's a much darker, much heavier record. There's some preachiness here. You, you hear on the hip-hop message boards Lupe getting a lot of stick for being, you know, the preacher, the guy who's wagging his finger and saying, you know, naughty, naughty, you guys shouldn't be doing these kind of things. As you said, he's a devout Muslim. There's a song here where he, he uh, personifies a cheeseburger and says, yeah. why... <laughs> I'm bad for you. You should not eat me. Hey, he had a whole lot of cheese. Plus, he was the Mac. Had a whole lot of C's. Made a lot of against fat. Gave a whole lot of G's. Grams. Man, he had a whole lot of these. And he would let you hold like a whole lot of keys. Even if you lose some, he would give you new ones. Twice the bread. It's like he had two buns. And he had a whole lot of seeds. His subject matter is really interesting in the way he presents it. The sonic settings remind me a lot of uh, not only his fellow Chicagoan Kanye West, but Outkast in the way he Mm -hmm. blows out the margins of what people think hip-hop should sound like and takes it into some really interesting areas. He's collaborating with Queens of the Stone Age? Yeah. I mean, you know, Uncle, the British uh, producer, he's got a track on here with Patrick Stump of Fall Out Boy. I'm not a huge Fall Out Boy fan, but I I have to say the song Little Weapon with Patrick Stump doing uh, the production on that song is terrific. I killed another man today. Shot him in his back as he ran away. Then I blew up his hut with a hand grenade. Cut his wife though, and she put her hands to pray. Just five more dogs, then we can get a soccer ball. That's what my commander say. How old? Well, I'm like 10, 11. Been fighting since I was like six or seven. Now I don't know in that song, he's talking about boy soldiers in Africa. This is the kind of subject matter, this is the kind of lyricism you don't hear on a lot of hip-hop records these days. You know, There's also a mini-narrative we're weaving through here, Jim, with uh, three characters, uh, a hustler called The Cool, this menacing father figure called The Game, and a temptress called The Streets. Well, I was wondering when you were going to get to that. Now, have you figured that out? Because I think it's got something to do with a fatherless kid being yeah. raised on the streets, and he squanders his potential, you know, dealing drugs. I mean, that I've got him there, but then the zombies come in, <laughs> yeah. and I don't know, I, that, that's when he loses me. Yeah, you know, I don't think the narrative, you know, he's a very dense lyricist anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not the easiest guy to pick up on the first or second swipe through, but it, I think he intended to make this record uh, a dense listen, one of those records that is going to grow over time. I think it's a less easy record to like than the first one, but the hooks are still there, the lyricism is still there. It's it's a wonderful record. I just don't see this record being a huge hit, but I don't think Lupe cares about that. His whole career has been about what is cool and trying to make the uncool things in 
African-American culture cool again. Well, that's absolutely true. You know, the title The Cool comes from a lot of things that Dr. Cornell West has written about, you know, only when we start saying that reading and and, and becoming an intellectual is cooler than becoming a drug dealer are we going to break this cycle that the African-American community is in. Lupe is not uh, afraid to say, you know, I like video games. I like comic books about zombies. You know, I don't (laughs) like cheeseburgers. And and on and on and on. At the same time, by doing this mini-narrative, the songs that linked together about the kid who's losing his way as a drug dealer, he gets to play you know, it, he's having his cake and eating it too. You mm-hmm. see what he's doing. He's playing, you know, the tough guy on the streets. There, there are, are raps about women, which are you know, I mean, it's certainly PG-13, but still, he doesn't really think in those terms There's raps about being a drug dealer, but he's playing a character. So he's getting to do it both ways. The same thing Common did on his last album. Right. Lyrically, it, it loses me a bit, but musically, this is an incredibly inventive album. You know, the stuff that Rhymefest common Kanye West at the head of the class and now Lupe Fiasco uh, the stuff that they're doing I mean is really going back to the heyday of A Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and Beastie Boys circa Paul's Boutique and we are seeing a sort of invention and musicality in hip hop proud to say coming out of Chicago that that we haven't seen in 10 or 15 years people who say that rap isn't music I mean they have to listen to this I give this a buy it for me on our buy it burn it trash it scale I agree with you Jim it's a buy it record all the way Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, very exciting news. The swell season, Marketa Erglova and Glenn Hansard, who are probably going to be up for an Oscar nomination for Best Soundtrack for the movie Once. Sounds good, Greg. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with some interning help from Dave Mahler, and our fearless leader, executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, the man who looks even better in an ascot than Peter Bogdanovich. In case you've missed any of our recent shows, here are some of the records we've reviewed on Sound Opinions. Basin, a raisin in the sun was amazing. The throwing on the dresser, went off, jumped up, fish tank, it fell. When they stuck, they shot a cousin, Levon, Neo the Buck. Willie was awful, pulled out the let off two grits fell on his leg. Kiana ripped him cold, booey, valent, a Allen with the talent of six killers who just came home from straight wailing. That is The Heart Gently Weeps, a track from the new Wu Tang Clan record, Eight Diagrams. Jim, it's hard to overestimate how important this group is in hip-hop history with its debut album only. If it had just come out with Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, in 1993, its place in hip-hop history would have been assured. Absolutely. Ghostface Killa is arguably the single most influential member of that very formidable posse of MCs in this group. And he's barely on this record. These guys are way more interested in their solo projects than they are in the Wu-Tang Clan itself. And as a result, each Wu-Tang Clan album has been a case of diminishing returns. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's a letdown. But then so was Iron Flags. I mean, they've been scattered and the talent's pulled in too many directions for too long. What really needs to happen, Jim, 
is the Ghostface and RZA need to bring their talents together. Clearly, yeah. they are the kingpins in the Wu-Tang Empire right now, and they are not working together. So as a result, Eight Diagrams, the Wu-Tang Clan record, there's a few good tracks on there. I say burn it to that one. The Ghostface Killer record, the Big Doe Rehab, a big, big letdown. I say it's a trash it. Well, I hate to say it, but I agree with you 100%. Burn the Wu-Tang record, trash the Ghostface. song called The Well from the new Damon and Naomi record, Within These Walls. They are uh, fleshing out their sound in a way that has not occurred before in their 15-year career. Their previous records all sounded like bedroom recordings, very intimate, but not particularly expansive. This record with the brass and with the string section, we've got them coming out into the world. I love the sound on that particular song that we just played, The Well. The String and brass arrangements, I'm a little split on. I love the string sounds. I love most of the brass sounds. And i got to say, I respect Bob Rainey a great deal as a saxophonist. But there are moments on this record where I think, is this guy emulating Kenny G or something? I mean, the soprano soprano sax stuff is just a little sickly and a little too pretty. I wish he'd sort of soured it up a little bit, made it a little bit more See, in keeping with that sort of eerie mood that this record but sets. that's a contrast it's to the fact that... It's a little too pretty. No, but Damon and, and Naomi it me. are aware of the fact that they are true DIY underground musicians. And I think that their amateurism plays well off of Rainey's uh, obvious accomplishment. I mean, this guy's a virtuoso, as you said, an underground great. I would give this one a buy it, as I would virtually everything they've done. Well... You know, I'm not disagreeing with the buy it. I'll, I'll give it a buy it as well. You take that saxophone out of that, out of this thing, and it'd be about a perfect record. Just hate soprano saxophone, all I right, guess, unless right. Wayne Shorter's playing it. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Sound Opinions, this is uh, Rich. I'm calling from Chicago. It breaks my heart when I listen to you guys talk intelligently about an album and then seemingly at the end reduce it to, I think it's a buy it record. I think it's a burn it record. It's like you're totally destroying everything else you've said by reducing it to this little sound bite. And uh, it's like the thumbs up, thumbs down mentality. And I think it's, it's what's wrong with a lot of criticism today. And I think you're kind of insulting your listeners by giving these kind of really simple ratings. All right, thanks again, guys. Doing a great job. So long. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.